Jess Mason here with none other than Dr. Mel Herbert to talk about ethanol withdrawal. What's up, Mel? Not much up. I haven't seen many of these patients over the years, so this will be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've never, <laughs> never seen a single one of these, right? Irony. No. I've got to tell you a quick story. You know, I thought I knew about alcohol withdrawal when I was in Australia. Australia is a big drinking country, and I thought I knew alcohol withdrawal. And then I came to the States, and I thought, you know, you guys were doing a really excellent job, much worse than the patients that I'd seen in Australia. Then I went to County USC. Oh my gosh. I have never seen people so, so sick with alcohol withdrawal from the jail because they drink this particular brew very, very bad. So You're talking about Pruno. Yeah. Yeah. Really bad withdrawal. Yeah. So lots to talk about. There is. So C3, as we know now, is comprehensive core curriculum. So we're going to attack this from a core curriculum perspective, meaning we're going to cover this from the basics for the new learner in the emergency department. But we know that you seasoned folks out there are listening as well and can add in your comments and expertise. And we encourage that on every single episode of C3. Approach to the critical patient and key concepts. So first, we have to say that we are following pretty closely the Corpendium chapter on ethanol withdrawal. So a shout out and a thank you to the chapter authors, Kyle Rattray and Scott Phillips, the section editors, Michael Moss and Mike DeRock, and then the associate editor, Sean Nort, who is also, very fortunately for us, serving as our peer reviewer for this episode. So thank you, Sean. Following the Corpendium chapter, we are going to start, as always, with the approach to the critical patient. We want to tell you right up front what to do with the sickest patient. And from there, we'll go into key concepts. Then we'll talk diagnosis, treatment, disposition. And finally, we'll do a little bit of a deep dive with some pathophysiology and some of the more nuanced conversations on this subject. So with that, Mel, let's start with the sickest patient. Actually, you know what? Let's start with this. What's the take-home message from this whole episode when you're treating a really sick alcohol withdrawal patient? What's your take-home point? My take-home point is that these patients can be unbelievably ill. And the treatment for these patients is an enormous amount of sedation. Drugs in doses that you just can't imagine. They would kill a normal person. And then supportive care, airway, breathing, circulation. But these patients, when they really have this disease badly, this is a life, truly life-threatening disorder that you have to get ahead of. And so with that, let's talk about airway, breathing, circulation, the A, B, C, D, E's. A and B. I always try to tell my new residents who are kind of nervous in a resuscitation, they get a sick patient. This just came up on shift the other day. And you get that frozen look on the resident's face and they don't know what to do next. They don't know what to say and they just freeze. Always, you can always go back to A, B, C, I, V, O, 2 monitor. And that is absolutely the right thing to do with the patient who is really sick with alcohol withdrawal. Oftentimes, we need to manage their airway and take over their breathing. They may not be able to protect their airway. You may need to give them so much sedation medications that they are no longer protecting their airway and you have to breathe for them. So intubating these patients is something that comes up not infrequently. And when we reach for medications for the rapid sequence intubation, we're going to lean towards medications that are GABAergic. Sean Nort's going to talk about this more in the deep dive. So think about things like benzos, benzos or propofol. And avoid succinylcholine in patients that you're worried about prolonged seizure activity or concern for hyperkalemia. C. Okay, so that's the A's and the B's. What about circulation? All right, get a couple of big lines in these people. They're going to need some fluid usually. They may have been vomiting and started withdrawal, you know, hours to days ago. 
You can throw some thiamine and glucose and folate and stuff in there. We discussed that on the last one, and that's very controversial. But the key thing is that these patients can be pretty dehydrated, so make sure that you catch up with that fluid. I like to have a glucose-containing fluid in there. Also understand that they can have severe autonomic dysfunction, so their blood pressure can be sky-high one second and drop like a stone the next. That's to be expected. D&D. Disability and exposure. That's our D and our E, so disability. Remember that glucose check? You were just saying it, Mel. It's important, like you said, to give some dextrose in their fluid because they often can get hypoglycemic. Oftentimes, patients are not eating because they're drinking instead. Then they go into withdrawal. They're altered. So check the glucose and make sure that they're not hypoglycemic as a cause of their seizure rather than just assuming that it's because of alcohol withdrawal. And exposure. As we talked about in the alcohol intoxication episode, these patients are at really high risk for trauma or falls, or injuries, or maybe they have something else going on with them. Maybe they have a needle hanging out of their arm, or some other thing that could be causing their altered mental status. So you want to get exposure and do a head-to-toe exam. And then you want to start your sedation. So I'm old school. I really like diazepam, something like 10 milligrams IV, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. How much? How much you got? The problem with uh, people who have this really badly is that you can run out of it in the department, and so you might have to go to something else. So my second-line agent would be Phenobarb. And this is where you start worrying, because you've got this person who's really sick, you're giving them a whole bunch of benzos, you're giving them a whole bunch of Phenobarb, and then the next thing that happens is they can stop breathing. So how much Phenobarb do you use, Jess? So to clarify, it's Phenobarbital, or we call it Phenobarb, and it depends on how sick they look, right? Same thing with how much benzos. You might be starting with 130 milligrams, but someone who I'm considering intubating, someone who's critically ill, I'm going to start with 260 milligrams as my initial dose. And then you can repeat it. You can add on another 130, another 130. Now, once I've given 260, 130, 130, I'm probably going to start going the benzo route because I know I've got a good phenobarbital load in that patient. That's if I started with phenobarbital from the beginning. So, and like you said, I think it's okay once you've gotten a lot of benzos, go to phenobarb and vice versa. And there's another option for sedation, and that's propofol. It's actually a great option for an intubated patient, and so you can start them on a propofol drip. And again, we'll save the nuance and pathophysiology and all that good stuff about GABA and NMDA for Sean Nort's explanation. Yeah, and there's a bunch of other meds we're going to talk about later, and there's also Lots of controversy here. So already there's lots of people that are screaming at us that we've already told you to use the wrong benzo. So it's very exciting. We'll talk more about it. Definitions. Now we talked about the really sick patient with alcohol withdrawal, but we actually haven't even defined it yet. So we need to talk about ethanol or alcohol withdrawal. I'm going to use them interchangeably. People could yell at me later for that. And then we also have to define another term, delirium tremens. So Mel, what's the patient look like who's got a severe alcohol withdrawal? Describe that look to me. Um, I'm thinking of a particular patient that I had from the jail who initially was talking and then within 10 minutes was profusely sweating and confused. Blood pressure was skyrocketing, you know, systolic over 220. And then it would, you know, go down to like 90 and the nurses were very confused. What's going on here? And then he started seizing and we'd already gotten lines and we'd already started treatment. And he's seizing and we're getting the airway equipment ready. So this is like terrifying. This person was talking 10 minutes ago and now is profoundly unstable, is going to need an airway and is seizing and I can't stop the seizures. Terrifying. 
And I'm sure this patient looks sweaty and maybe vomiting and shaking, seizing. So that's like on the severe end, right? And then there's this thing called delirium tremens. But I think rather than dwelling on a definition of delirium tremens, you pointed out, Mel, that delirium tremens is just the severe side of alcohol withdrawal. It's the severe end of that spectrum, right? Yeah. So alcohol withdrawal is a huge spectrum from I'm just feeling a little bit anxious and I got a little bit jittery to you're seizing and you're dying. And is that how you pronounce it? Because I always have pronounced it delirium tremors, but it's clearly not spelt tremors. <laughs> and so I think I've we, been saying yeah, it wrong for 30 years. I think a lot of people make that mispronunciation because they get a tremor, right? Or the, <laughs> exactly. hand, the little that's hand tremor, I guess that's known as rum fits, but the little hand tremor, that's what they feel. They have a tremor, they feel anxious, their heart's a little bit fast. And so they call it delirium tremors, but it's actually delirium tremens. So I don't know why, but that's what it's called. When does that start? Because I have always just thought of it as they're the really sick people. And I've never thought, where's the moment in time along the yeah. spectrum that they go from having bad withdrawal to this delirium tremens? Yeah. And sort of who cares, right? Because it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter. But definition wise, following the corpendium chapter, they define it as Severe alcohol withdrawal with an alteration in the patient's ability to interact with their environment, okay? So now the patient is basically, it's altered mental status. They're not able to interact with you, with their environment. And they also say there could also be cognitive, perceptual disturbances that are not accounted for by another medical or psychiatric condition. So the severe end, the severe end of alcohol withdrawal, which can be fatal if not diagnosed and treated promptly. And we should say there's nothing in there about an alcohol level. Like patients can withdraw and have substantial withdrawal, very, very sick withdrawal, and have really high alcohol levels because they live at super duper high alcohol levels. So the alcohol level really doesn't help you very much. If you have an alcohol level of 600 all the time and you drop down to 200, which for most people would make you unconscious, you can start withdrawing. So the alcohol level is not particularly helpful. Scoring tools. There are a couple of scoring tools that I want to mention here in the key concepts section. It's the CIWA score and the SUS score. CIWA is Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Scale, and SUS is Severity of Ethanol Withdrawal Score. It's important to know that these exist. It's important to know that you can use them to sort of give a rating of how severe their withdrawal is. But to be honest, Mel, I have never stood at the bedside of a sick patient with alcohol withdrawal and said, whoa, 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 hold the lorazepam until I calculate this score. Like, no, you stand at the bedside and assess the patient and the score doesn't even actually matter until kind of later on if it's going to help you make a decision or give sort of an objective assessment of how severe that patient is. Do you agree? Yeah, I frankly, I didn't even know that these existed. I mean, you kind of knew that they existed, but I just never used them. So it's just not part of my momentarium. Um, but I think it could make sense, particularly if you're in a lower resource setting and your nurses are going to give medications while you're seeing 20 other patients and it gives them some guide as to how much stuff to give at uh, particular sort of points along the spectrum. But personally, I never have used them. Yeah, I don't use it either. I think the way it is used is, as you have described it, there are order sets that allow sort of a nurse to go do a bedside assessment using one of these tools and then administer an amount of a medication based on that score. And we'll talk more about this in the deep dive about the CIWA versus the SUS. Know that the CIWA score has a lot of subjectivity. 
And so the authors of this chapter lean more towards the Sue's score if you're going to use one of these scoring tools. Common pitfalls. And finally, common pitfalls. I think we hit this, Mel. The key thing here is that these patients are really sick. And the biggest pitfall I've seen is under treatment. You know, like you mentioned in your example, that patient really spiraled down the drain very quickly. And if you're not at the bedside to recheck that patient, it can get really bad really fast. Yeah. And you said the other important things. Think about trauma. Think about is there other infections and other stuff going on? These are really high risk patients. But the biggest pitfall is the one you said, in my experience, is that people stop giving the medications because they've given so much. They just are freaking out. You've given how much benzo? That's you know, not compatible with life. Stop. But the patient is still like really sick. Don't worry about the uh, usual medication doses here. You just give them until the patient is calmed. And if you have to take their airway, sometimes you have to take their airway. Chapter two, diagnosis and treatment. Let's talk about the diagnosis of ethanol withdrawal. We talked about this in the last chapter. We really focused on that severely ill patient but there is a huge spectrum here. Mild symptoms. Let's start with the mild ethanol withdrawal patient. What does that look like, Mel? That looks like somebody who's a little anxious, maybe got a little mild tremor. Maybe they can't sleep properly. Maybe they got a little bit of sweating and they just don't feel very good. A little nausea, a little anorexia. So really mild, just like mild. Right. They're still talking to you. Moderate and severe. Moderate and severe. How do they progress to more severe ethanol withdrawal? Clinically, what do they look like? Yeah, and this is definitely a spectrum. So you can start to get that tachycardia, the hypertension, that autonomic instability. They may even develop a fever, but if you've got a fever, obviously you're thinking about other stuff as well. And then they can start to have hallucinations. These are usually visual, not usually auditory, but they can have all types of hallucinations in my experience. And then as they get worse, that autonomic instability gets worse and worse. And then the agitation gets worse and worse. And then they get altered. And then they start seizing. And then they're sweaty. And then all hell breaks loose like we described in the last chapter. Treatment. All right, so that's what they look like. Now let's go into more detail on treatment here. And as we discussed in the last chapter, the common pitfall that we want to avoid is under-treating, right? We want to make sure we're adequately sedating the patient. And I have to mention, I've also seen this go the other direction, where I've seen residents actually start to treat withdrawal in a patient who's still intoxicated. So if you're not sure, and you haven't seen enough cases of this, Go get someone more senior than you to lay some eyes on the patient. But usually it's the first one where you're not giving enough medication to adequately sedate someone who's withdrawing. And the biggest pitfall is understanding that this is a dynamic process and you need to reassess and reassess and reassess. What was true 15 minutes ago may not be true now. So continual reassessment of this dynamic disease. Medications. Let's go through some of the actual medications that are options and the pros and cons of them starting with the benzodiazepines. Benzos. Which one is your go-to, Mel? I like uh, diazepam, Valium, because that's kind of what I grew up with. So the dose of diazepam, Valium, is 5 to 10 milligrams IV, and then you can repeat it every 5, 10 minutes until, you know, you get to where you need to be. They don't recommend IM diazepam because it's got sort of variable absorption. And this has got a pretty fast onset within about a minute and a long half-life because of all of its metabolites. We're talking about 20 hours. I always like to hear the toxicologists scream at each other about which is the correct one. And they know so much about the you know, pathophysiology of these drugs and everything. But I like diazepam because I'm used to it. It works really well. It's got all these metabolites that gives us this long tail. 
And so I like it because I like it. That's good. And if it's what you're comfortable with, then that's great. Actually, I think you should go with either what you're comfortable with or what is most quickly available, right? If the nurse is like, oh, that has to come down from pharmacy. Okay, well, we're not going to go with that one. Just give me the one in your pocket and we'll start there. Lorazepam. But there are other options. There's lorazepam, which is Ativan. And you could start with a dose of around two to four milligrams IV. I think that's what's in Corpendium, but many people would say, whoa, that's not nearly enough. You're going to have to start a lot stronger than that. And that was recently discussed on MRAP in a case that Swami presented. Now, the downside here is that it takes a little longer to take effect. It takes around five to 10 minutes instead of one minute, like you said, with diazepam. And the half-life is a little shorter. For lorazepam, the half-life is around two to six hours. But for Valium or diazepam, it's 20 hours. So that's really going to stay on board a long time, which is a good thing in someone who's pretty sick with ethanol withdrawal. Midazolam. The third option is midazolam, which is Versed. Midazolam gives you a pretty quick onset, three to five minutes. But the downside is that the half-life is quite short, 30 to 80 minutes. So you're going to be redosing that very frequently if that's what you reach for. And again, whatever the nurse has in his or her pocket, just give that one and then worry about your subsequent doses later. And then you can make a, a more thoughtful decision about which benzo and why. Yeah. And you can mix and match as well. Again, sometimes the tremendous dosing you've got to do here. And if you run out of one, go to the other one and uh, then go to the next thing. Just keep it going if you need to. Phenobarbs. So phenobarb, what about phenobarb? Now, this is something that I find really interesting because 30 years ago, when I came to this country on a boat, I'd never used phenobarb for alcohol withdrawal. I didn't even know you could. And at UCLA, I did my residency there, and we never used phenobarb. And then 10 years later, when I moved to USC, they started with phenobarb. So what's your experience with phenobarb at all? Yeah, I trained somewhere that all started with benzodiazepines. And then when I started working at UCSF Fresno, phenobarbital was a very common option there. And I once I became comfortable with it, I really started to lean on phenobarbital. And it's okay to mix and match if you have to, right? If you start with one, but then have to switch to another. But actually, I've become very comfortable treating with phenobarbital. 130 to 260 milligrams IV is a good first dose. And in that sicker patient, you're going to go for the higher dose. And the good thing about phenobarbital is it has an incredibly long half-life. I mean, we're talking days. So it may take a little bit of time to take effect, but the half-life is so, so long. So for many people, that's a reason why phenobarbital is going to be an agent of choice. And okay, let's say, Jess, you've given them lots and lots of benzos and you've given them lots and lots of phenobarbital. Is there a max dose of uh, phenobarbital that the Corpendium talks about? They actually don't give a maximum dose in the Corpendium chapter. You can redose as needed. And in my experience, though, I'll say that if I start with 260 and then I give 130, and then I give 130. And if I'm getting to the point that I'm redosing it that frequently, then I'm probably going to add on a benzodiazepine as well to see if they start to respond to that a little bit better. That's my practice. Yeah. And I've seen people who use a lot of phenobarb basically say, well, once I get to a thousand milligrams over a reasonable short amount of time, I'm definitely adding something else because that's a lot of phenobarbital. So I don't know. Again, we'll have to have the experts weigh in in the comments section. Yep. And then if you've given that much, you're likely intubating the patient. And if you're intubating the patient, we mentioned propofol earlier, but Mel, is that one of the things that you reach for for a sedation agent or are you going to stick with the benzo route? 
No, at that point when they're getting tubed and they're that sick, I will go with propofol. I'm pretty comfortable with it. I know that it has these extra effects. And now I'm looking for, you know, different agents. I'm trying to knock out this person. I'm trying to sedate them any way I can with multiple agents. So I like the idea of using something like propofol. Yeah. And it also has the benefit, as does benzodiazepines, of having some anti-epileptic properties to help treat the seizures that the patient's probably having. Ketamine. Now, ketamine. I never used ketamine for withdrawal. Have you used ketamine for withdrawal? You know, I have used it in severely agitated patients and just to gain control over the situation. But no, it's not really my go-to for just treating withdrawal unless agitation is a really major component that needs control right away. Otherwise, it's not. The authors do mention it as an option here for refractory, severe alcohol withdrawal, but it's not something that's my go-to option. Yeah, and I did a quick literature review on this, and there is a number of small papers that basically say we gave a lot of benzos, and then we gave a little bit of ketamine, and that seemed to smooth people out. These are very small studies. These are sort of not even case control studies. They're just like Mikey likes it papers. I haven't found a big uh, study that's looked at this, but that's certainly an option, particularly if they're agitated. And a lot of people in the discussion sections were saying they like it because ketamine doesn't generally take away your airway. So if you're using lots of benzos and you really have not many resources and you want to try a little ketamine to smooth them out, that seems reasonable. The other thing I should say is that one of Billy Mallon's pearls for looking after these patients was to give them a little antipsychotic as well. A little tincture of Haldol can uh, sort of smooth them out a little bit and maybe help manage that patient who's getting a bit psychotic. Dexmetatomidine. And another agent we have to mention here is dexmetatomidine. It's not something that I have yet had available to me where I've worked, but I think this is like a coming soon for a lot of emergency clinicians, right? This is something that a lot of the ICUs have and it hasn't made its way down to every emergency department. But the benefit here is that it might allow for sedation without impairing ventilation. So this is another agent to be aware of and could be a good option if you're comfortable with it and if it's available to you. I feel like this has been coming soon for 20 years. This has beaded the ICU and it's coming downstairs, but it is taking a hell of a long time to walk down those stairs. It sure is. And it's 10 years away from being the new ketamine where we're like, dexmedetomidine for everything. It's amazing. Coming soon. Disposition. Now let's talk disposition. This is, uh, I like to say it's easy when it's easy and then everything else is the gray zone, right? If they're intubated, they're going to the ICU. That one's easy. And if they've got mild withdrawal and you give them a dose of whatever, benzo or phenobarbital, and you discharge them, that's easy. It's everything else in the middle that really does get a bit tricky here. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, a little mild withdrawal sometimes doesn't need any pharmacological intervention and they can just go get followed up or you just give them a little bit of benzos for a day or so. And up the other end of the extreme, it's easy. But so much of the disposition depends on where you work and what your resources are. So if you have a patient who is very well off with lots of great health insurance and can go to a Malibu clinic and go into drug rehab, great. You can just send that person there. But if you work at a county hospital, In the middle of California, you might not have those resources, Jess. Yeah, I will share my experience here. And I've really worked more on the the county side where patients don't have really anywhere to go or any options. And they come in with some withdrawal symptoms. And a common practice is to try to get their symptoms under control so that they're well enough to go home. And then they can try to set up some resources for themselves and talk to the social worker about outpatient resources. 
but inpatient rehab has not been an option anywhere that I've worked so far. So a reasonable option for mild withdrawal is to treat them with something like phenobarbital or a benzodiazepine, either as a single dose, something like Valium, which is long acting, or a taper of chlordiazepoxide or lorazepam, and then just reassess how they're doing, and then hopefully discharge them so that they can go home and seek that help that they are looking for if they're truly wanting to quit drinking. And back in the day, we used to do these tapers of chlordiazepoxide. Is that how you pronounce it? Man, it's been so long. Chlordiazepoxide. And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea about the studies that have looked at the different types of outpatient tapering things, but that was just something that we all did because it was what was available at the county hospitals. And there's a lot of different regimens and there's a lot of them that are online, but you do something like 15 milligrams four times a day on day one and then 10 milligrams four times a day on day two and then 10 milligrams three times a day and then five milligrams three times a day and then five milligrams twice a day and then five milligrams just once a day. But there's lots of different regimens and you can go much higher than that depending on the prediction of how bad the alcohol dependence is. So that's what we used to use back in the day. I don't know if people are using it much anymore. Yeah, I think many people still do prescribe chlordiazepoxide tapers. And the benefits to chlordiazepoxide are that it has less respiratory depression and it has less effect on the reward center of the brain. So patients are less likely to become dependent on it or come back seeking chlordiazepoxide as opposed to theoretically some of the other benzodiazepines. And as far as tapers go, there's actually no magic to how you write a taper. We have a number of suggestions as to how to do this in previous MRAP segments that we can link to, but there's no sort of magical way to do it. Just sort of start at one dose and then a couple days later, cut it down by half and then cut it down by half again type of thing till it's basically down to nothing. So that's tapers. But let me ask you, Mel, about the patient who you see in the ED you treat their withdrawal because they're having some mild symptoms, and now what? How do you know when that patient is ready to go or if they're safe to go or if they need another dose of medication? What do you do? Check on them, what, 30 minutes later and see how they're feeling and see if they're ready to go home at that point? Yeah, you got to sort of keep them long enough so that you know you haven't over-sedated them and you're sending them home to you know, lose an airway, but not so long that it starts to wear off and it depends on the agent and it depends on where you work. And this is really difficult. You're intervening at a moment in time for a disorder which is chronic. Yeah. I mean, uh, alcoholism is a chronic disorder and you're intervening at one moment. And if you do not have outpatient services, it makes this really difficult and lots of recidivism. And you just make sure you tell the patient, if you're getting worse, you come back. We're open 24-7. This is a very serious disease you have and we're here to help you, even if you can't get helped as an outpatient. And before you give them a long-acting agent, you really have to make sure that they understand this is going to be in their system for potentially days. And so are they really wanting to stop drinking? Because if you give them that phenobarbital or Valium and you discharge them and then they fall out the wagon, start drinking again, they might get overly sedated. So they really have to know that before you're going to treat them. I mean, the patient also has the agency to make that decision themselves too. If they say they genuinely want to quit, I'm not going to stand there and say, well, I don't trust you and I'm not going to treat your alcohol withdrawal because you're going to start drinking again. No, I'm going to err on the side of really trying to help them get through the withdrawal. And if they're trying to get sober, I want to help them try to be able to do that. Now, if you're a person who really likes these clinical decision tools and scores, then the chapter authors recommend that you can discharge patients who have mild symptoms, meaning a CWA score of less than eight or a SUS score of less than six. 
In the next chapter, we'll get into the components of that score a little bit. So if it helps you, you can lean on those numbers to help you guide that decision. Chapter 3. Deep Dive. And now, Dr. Sean Nort will explain the pathophysiology of ethanol withdrawal. Hi, this is Sean Nort. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Mel. Yeah, let's deep dive into ethanol withdrawal. Now, for me, ethanol withdrawal is really a tale of two cities because you have your average run-in-the-mill, moderate ethanol withdrawal or mild ethanol withdrawal that we see every day. And then we have less common severe ethanol withdrawal and the most frustratingly treatment-resistant ethanol withdrawal. So you'll hear a lot of debate which benzo is best for alcohol withdrawal. And in my opinion, for your moderate or mild alcohol withdrawal, a benzo is a benzo. There really isn't much difference. However, I think in severe ethanol withdrawal and the treatment-resistant diazepam has more of a role, and we'll get into that. Why do people get treatment-resistant? Why don't these medications work all the time? And when we think about the effects that ethanol has on the body, particularly with chronic use, it makes a lot more sense and makes our approach to treating these severe ethanol withdrawals and treatment-resistant ethanol withdrawals a little bit easier. Ethanol hits so many different parts of the body. Predominantly, we worry about the CNS. It works on so many receptors, channels, neurotransmitters involved. You have GABA, you have glutamate, you have dopamine, you have serotonin, you have norepinephrine, acetylcholine, glycine, all these things, right? But let's break it down. Even though we're doing the deep dive, we have to make it a little easier to approach it. And this really will help us when we look at what these effects are and the predominant effects. When someone drinks ethanol, what happens is their GABA goes up, the chloride ions move through that channel and you hyperpolarize cells and you get all these kind of knock-on effects from there. Everyone remembers probably learning about dopamine and acetylcholine on a seesaw and being in good balance. Well, think of that very much the same with GABA, the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the CNS. And on the other side is glutamate, the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the CNS. And usually they're in a nice balance. But what happens with chronic ethanol use is that that GABA inhibitory effects keep getting hit and hit and hit over time. And what happens is that you get downregulation of those GABA receptors. And that means that it takes a lot more alcohol to get the same effects. Similarly, what you do by inhibiting glutamate, so you don't get that excitatory neurotransmitter release anymore, then you get an upregulation of glutamate receptors. So when there isn't any more ethanol around, there's a lot of these receptors that can get overstimulated. Now, it's very interesting. Glutamate has a role in people who develop a substance use disorder because glutamate normally inhibits dopamine release and dopamine in the midbrain and then goes to other parts of the brain, including the frontal cortex. That's the feel-good reward pathway. And so when that glutamate is inhibited, let's say with ethanol in this case, what happens is you get this flooding of dopamine and then people can develop substance use disorders. So let's get back to those receptors. So now we have someone who's chronically using ethanol, hitting that GABA receptor all the time and inhibiting the glutamate receptor all the time, all the time, all the time. And then when the alcohol stops, now everything's out of balance. So they don't have any more stimulation of the GABA so they get that loss of inhibition, and then those glutamic acid receptors are really working overtime. 
Now, I agree with Mel and Jess when they were talking about delirium tremens, and I would just avoid the term delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is also known as fourth-degree alcohol withdrawal. Get into the pedantics of it. I don't think are really important. We all know that ethanol withdrawal is a spectrum of disease, and really just think of delirium tremens as a component of severe alcohol withdrawal. But what I want to focus on is really the treatment-resistant one that we were talking about. So we all know how alcohol withdrawal presents. Someone doesn't drink for 6 to 12 to 24 hours, and they start off getting a little shaky, they get tremors, they get diaphoretic, their blood pressure goes up, they get tachycardic, tachypnic, can see hyperthermia, hallucinosis, and then about 10% of patients with acute alcohol withdrawal will actually have a seizure. Fortunately, they have usually just one seizure. You can see status, but status is pretty uncommon. And they usually have a fairly short post-ictal period. But anyone who has a seizure, like we discussed in the first C3 when we're just talking about alcohol effects, we always want to check someone's sugar. We have to think about trauma and other etiologies, right? They're going to get a CT of their head because these patients are at great risk for various types of trauma, including in their heads. Treatment. But okay, so now we have the person in severe ethanol withdrawal, and what are we going to do? Now, you'll hear these different definitions about what is severe alcohol withdrawal, and it's one of those things, right? I know it if I see it. In the Corpendium chapter, the authors define it as lorazepam greater than 10 milligrams in one hour, or lorazepam greater than 40 milligrams in four hours, or diazepam greater than 200 milligrams in three hours. I think that you're using large doses repeatedly in a short period of time, you're heading into, if not already, in severe alcohol withdrawal. The dosage recommendation that the authors give in the chapter is to start off with diazepam 5 to 10 milligrams, and you can increase it to 10 milligrams every 5 to 10 minutes as you need it, up to a total of 320 milligrams is what they say. They also mention lorazepam 2 to 4 milligrams, doubling the dose every 15 minutes up to 64 milligrams. You can also use phenobarbital, we'll get that, but I just want to pause here and say all three of those medications, diazepam, lorazepam, and phenobarbital, all have propylene glycol in it. The concern of propylene glycol toxicity is often the reason you hear people mention ceiling doses, but if you have a patient that's responding well to a particular agent, you can go to even higher dosages. Just be mindful of that propylene glycol component, but the more common reason for switching agents is that the people just aren't responding to high doses. Propylene glycol gets metabolized to lactic acid. So you might see a lactic acidosis if you're using massive dosages of any three of those medications from the propylene glycol component. Now, the reason I like diazepam is it has several active metabolites, specifically nordiazepam and oxazepam. And what this does is gives a nice prolonged effect. This is similar to chlordiazepoxide. If you've heard that it's self-tapering, it's got a very similar metabolic pathway to diazepam. But I will mention here that if you don't have IV access and you have somebody, particularly if they had a seizure from alcohol, they're going through alcohol withdrawal and you're working on getting access, of course, you can use IM midazolam or IM lorazepam. We don't recommend IM diazepam because of the problems with absorption. So let's get back to treatment-resistant alcohol withdrawal and how the benzos work. So the benzos work on GABA, as we talked about, increasing their chloride ion channel. But remember all those NMDA, predominant glutamate receptors? Well, the benzos aren't going to have any effect on that. So that's where you can see the people be treatment-resistant, particularly if it's more of an NMDA effect that you're seeing. 
Another reason why we see severe alcohol withdrawal and treatment-resistant alcohol withdrawal is something known as the kindling effect. And what the kindling effect is, is people who go through recurrent severe alcohol withdrawal requiring treatment and hospitalization in particular have permanent changes and a neuronal hyperexcitability, which means that they have worse and worse ethanol withdrawal each time they have it, and it's harder and harder to treat. And this is one of the goals of not only early treatment of alcohol withdrawal, but ideally getting people to stop drinking and getting them into treatment to prevent the kindling phenomenon from developing. But that's another reason why we can see treatment-resistant ethanol withdrawal. So we have whatever dose we're using of diazepam or lorazepam, and you're treating them and that's not working. So now what do I do next? Well, a lot of people go to phenobarbital first. For me, I save phenobarb because if I have, I'm using those high doses of benzodiazepine and they're not working, well, now I'm going to go to phenobarbital. And phenobarbital has an additional benefit. It's a GABA agonist, but at higher dosages in particular, it can directly have chloride ions move through that channel. So that's where I'm going. So I have benzos aren't working, and I'm going to go to the barbiturates, which is phenobarbital. Phenobarbital can cause respiratory depression much more than benzos. It can also cause hypotension, which generally isn't a problem in this patient population. But for me, if I'm going to phenobarbital and they already have a lot of benzos on board, I'm intubating them. That's kind of my threshold. Now, Jess had mentioned the dose of 130 milligrams to 260 milligrams of phenobarbital. That's traditional dosing just based on how it's uh, available. Phenobarbital injection package at 130 milligrams, and you could double that. Now, those are just kind of the standard dosages, but they work quite well with people. So now I have benzos and I have phenobarb on board, but I'm still not addressing the NMDA problem from severe and treatment-resistant alcohol withdrawal. So what am I going to do? I am going to use ketamine as an induction agent. Remember, ketamine is a great NMDA antagonist. Now, you could use propofol as well as an induction agent, or you could use atomidate, but I think this is a really a great role for ketamine, and we're going to start treating those NMDA receptors. Now, in the chapter, they do mention that you could use an effusion of ketamine at 0.3 to 1.6 milligram per kilo per hour. I generally don't put people on a ketamine infusion for this indication, but okay, give them the ketamine, one to two milligrams per kilo as an induction agent. And then what am I going to keep them sedated with? Well, I'm going to propofol. Propofol has a lot of good benefits, in my opinion. It is an NMDA receptor antagonist. It also works on GABA. It's short-acting, so when they're over the hump of this, that they can rapidly shut it off and wake the patient up and extubate them. And it also can decrease blood pressure. And that can be a benefit too, because our patient, particularly if we give them ketamine, we might even see their blood pressure get higher because of that. So there's some therapeutic benefit from the cardiovascular effects of propofol. Another agent that you could consider using is dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist, so it's like clonidine. And there's data to support its use in alcohol withdrawal. Most EDs that I know of don't have dexmedetomidine, although I think that there's more and more that are getting it. So I like propofol because if they start on propofol, I think that it's really good. If you did have somebody who already had a couple of seizures, propofol is actually very good for that as well. And the ICU is probably going to switch them at some stage if they're on propofol because of the concern of propofol infusion syndrome. So I'll say, okay, I start off with propofol, and anytime they want to convert the patient to dexmedetomidine, if they choose that as an agent, I think that that's an appropriate drug choice. The dexmedetomidine also has the benefit of also decreasing blood pressure because it's an alpha-2 agonist. 
So you can see a lot of these sedative agents are hitting a lot of different receptors, but also having some benefits from a cardiovascular standpoint. Since we're mentioning cardiovascular effects, I do want to highlight that one of the benefits of benzodiazepines, particularly high-dose benzodiazepines, is that they're sympatholytic. When those people are in their sympathetic overdrive with tachycardia and hypertension and diaphoresis and everything else, those benzos are working real well on that. So, okay, now we have our patient that we've exhausted our benzos or at least given them super high doses of benzos. We've added on our phenobarbital. We've given ketamine for induction. Maybe you're considering an infusion of that. And then you have them on a propofol infusion, or you could go with dexmedetomidine and just send the patient up. Alcohol hallucinosis. Let's talk about some other scenarios. What about alcohol hallucinosis? So it's estimated about 25% of patients will have alcohol hallucinosis. So how am I going to treat these? As you've probably seen, they can be treatment resistant just for the hallucinosis from benzos. But of course, I'm going to start with benzos. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't, I'm going to a butyrophenone. So it's either haloperidol if you have deperidol available to you. And this really works quite well. Now, you'll hear there's concerns about the seizure threshold being lowered with butyrophenones. I think the risk of seizure threshold being lowered is much greater with phenothiazines than butyrophenones. So I would stay away from the phenothiazines. And these patients have been treated with benzos. So you can see that they've been prophylactically at least got some benzos on board. And hopefully that would minimize any chance of a seizure that occurred. But they could have a seizure just from the ethanol withdrawal itself and have nothing to do with the butyrophenone. Of course, they're usually tachycardic, so it makes the risk of torsade less common, and the QT prolongation doesn't happen really all that often, but of course, you're going to monitor for that as well. But I find that that's a really good approach for treating that alcohol hallucinosis. Thiamine deficiency. In the chapter, they also mentioned about thiamine. So let's deep dive into why exactly do people who chronically drink alcohol have a thiamine deficiency? Well, it's interesting because thiamine is so necessary, you have to get it in your diet, and a lot of our patients have a poor diet, but what thiamine does, it's a cofactor for so many things, carbohydrate metabolism, all these other things, but in the presence of althanol, and particularly chronic ethanol use, it inhibits and actually decreases the availability of a thiamine transporter to get thiamine across the brush border into the system, and people can get the complications of thiamine deficiency. Thing we worry most about, of course, is Wernicke's encephalopathy. So that's the presentation of the triad of ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and altered mental status. Ataxia, confusion, ophthalmoplegia. And we don't want to miss that one, of course. Right. And then over time, they could get beriberi, Korsakoff's. But let's just deal with the Wernicke. So you have a patient, either you're concerned or you know that this could be Wernicke's. And so you have to use high dose. In the chapter, they mention IV thiamine 200 to 500 milligrams. I start off with 500. It's very safe. It's a water-soluble B vitamin. And then it's 500 milligrams IV Q8 for several days. Now, traditionally, there was a big concern of people also with magnesium deficiency and people who used to give chronic alcohol and severe alcohol withdrawal magnesium. If you're concerned about hypomagnesemia in a particular patient, that's fine, but it's not really indicated to give the routine administration of magnesium to patients. Other vitamin deficiencies. These patients are at risk for other vitamin deficiencies, including folic acid. I do not think that there's a role for the banana bag in the routine management of alcohol withdrawal. Of course, if you're concerned about specific vitamin deficiencies, you can replete those. If you have a patient that you're able to discharge, you would try to feed them before they go and speak to them about trying to maintain as good a diet as possible. Of course, we know that that's not possible with many of our patients. Scoring systems. I would like to touch on some of the scoring systems that they mentioned in the chapter, particularly the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol. 
or Siwa R, you'll hear because it's the revised one. And what this is, is a 10-item, validated, very reproducible. I don't think much of a role for it in the emergency department. We're much more symptom-driven, particularly with those severe ethanol withdrawal patients. I think it's much harder. But this is used quite a bit on the inpatient side. And this is because you have multiple people and you want something that is a standardized approach. So this is kind of protocol-driven. I think if you're interested in it, you could read more about it. But again, I think a limited role in the emergency department. Summary. To summarize, the reason why we see severe ethanol withdrawal and treatment-resistant ethanol withdrawal is that imbalance of not enough GABA and too much glutamic acid, particularly at those NMDA receptors. And many of our patients are going to be suffering from that kindling phenomenon. I gave you the Sean Nord approach to how I treat alcohol withdrawal, starting off with benzos, going to high doses. I use diazepam. If that doesn't work, I'm going to phenobarbital. I'm going to intubate the patients using ketamine as an induction agent and then put them on a propofol infusion. Of course, there's many different approaches, and a lot of the clinicians out there and toxicologists have their own approach, and they all work very well generally. And if something's not working, maybe put some agents that'll target that other receptor that maybe not be getting treated enough. Back to you, Jess and Mel. Withdrawal scales. Well, now that Sean has covered that so thoroughly, can we take a minute and talk about some of these withdrawal scales, Mel, that have been mentioned in the Corpendium chapter? Do we have to? We don't have to, but here's why I think we should. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know what the heck was in these, to be honest. I really didn't. I mean, you could kind of use your gut feeling on it and be like, yeah, if they're tachycardic and sweaty, they're going to get some points for that. But like, let's just list off some of the things that are in there because most of us just put in that order set or have never used this before, to be honest. So we've got the CIWA, which is Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Scale. And you're going to get points for the following things. And there's a range of points that I will not torture you with those details. But but here are the things you get points for. Nausea and vomiting, tremor, sweats, anxiety, tactile disturbances or hallucinations, auditory disturbance, which can be even just frightening easily, all the way ranging up to auditory hallucinations, visual disturbances, headache, and orientation. Are you oriented to person, place, time, situation, for example? So... Based on that, you're going to get a range of points. And based on that point scale that you get, you can get treated with benzodiazepines or whatever medication accordingly. I am looking at the calculator in Corpendium. It's beautiful. There's no way in heck you would remember the scoring system unless you had a calculator. Yeah, no way. And you bring up a great point. The calculators are beautiful. Brian Parker, right? He is our calculator guru doing a wonderful job. So a shout out to Brian. Thank you for making these calculators in Corpendium. And if you didn't know that they're out there, there's actually a way you can search just for calculators and just identify any calculator. You name a calculator. I bet you we've got it. Just just test it out. Think of one and go check it out. Excellent. score. And we've even got the other one, the severity of ethanol withdrawal scale. Yes, the SUS score. Okay, it's binary and less subjective, a little bit quicker to use. And it's going to include the following components, anxiety, nausea or dry heaves or vomiting, sweating, including just like sweaty palms, tremor, agitation, disorientation, auditory hallucinations, any sort of other hallucinations. Typically, it would be visual, but it could be things like tactile or olfactory. And then vital sign abnormalities with very specific parameters, like a heart rate over 110, for example. Yeah, that seems a little bit more... um, Objective. Juicy. Yeah. uh, Meaty. Meaty, yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. Tasty. Something like that. 
yeah. tasty. Yeah, And it's delicious. certainly the calculator looks easier. <laughs> yeah, easier to use. Cool. Okay, so that's what's in those calculators. So now you can go out and use them if you find it clinically applicable. But don't stand at the bedside calculating a SUS score to decide if you're going to give a dose of benzodiazepine. Just treat the patient. Now, I think finally in this deep dive section, we should cover who are our high risk patients. Sort of all of these patients fall into that high risk category because anyone can suddenly become critically ill. But there are certain things, Mel, that you had pointed out that make it a little bit more likely that that patient's going to circle the drain. What are those things? So uh, the first thing I try and find out is, uh, have you had this before and how bad was it? Did you end up in the ICU six times in the past when you started withdrawing? And and you'll find that patients, in a non-judgmental way, if you're very good at that, will tell you exactly, you know, what's been going on in the past. I also try and get a sense for how much they drink. And I don't lead the witness here. I'm like, well, how much are you drinking? How big a problem do we have here? And they'll often be very honest with you. Say, like, I drink three liters of hard alcohol a day. And I'm like, so when you withdraw, I know this is going to be big time. So I try to talk to the patient, get that kind of information. And then there's other stuff, obviously. Every sick person who's also got uh, alcoholic disease, they're going to get sicker. So if you've got COPD, if you've got, you know, liver disease, uh, renal disease, anybody with other prior bad things, then put this on top, they're going to be a high-risk patient. You know, when I ask that question, how much do you drink a day? I often get an answer that I do not understand, right? Like for a while, I remember when I was new and patients would tell me they drink a fifth a day. I was like, a fifth of what? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What's a fifth? It's like, you have to know sort of the vernacular and I don't, I don't drink enough to know this. So a fifth, for example, is a 750 ml bottle of alcohol. And then, you know, they throw out the names of drinks that I don't know what the heck they are. Oh, I drink a Poco Loco Moco. Like what? I don't know what that is. I don't, you drink three of them. How much is that? I have no freaking idea. So that's what, uh, that's what the Google's for, right? Exactly. You don't ask them how many grams of alcohol a day you drink. (laughs) Right. Well, doctor, yeah, that fifth thing is very, uh, I didn't know that coming from Australia and the patients would say that. I'm like, a fifth? Why don't you drink the whole thing? Why don't you drink (laughs) the fifth of it? Prior to 1980, hard liquor was sold most commonly in two bottle sizes, half gallon or simply a half and a fifth of a gallon or simply a fifth. During the 1970s, there was a push to go metric for U.S. government standards. And in 1975, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, in cooperation with the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, decided that metric standard bottle size would take effect in January 1979. Thus, the half became 1.75 liters, or colloquially a handle, and a fifth became 750 milliliters. Conveniently, these measurements were already quite similar, the old fifth being 757 milliliters and the old half being 1.89 liters. So why do we still call a 750 milliliter a fifth, even though technically that's seven milliliters short of an actual fifth? Because the bottle sizes look almost exactly the same and no liquor producer is going to let you know that they shaved off some milliliters, but they're still charging the same amount. Wake up! Take home points. We said it at the beginning and we should say it again now. What are the take home points from this episode, Mel? The most important things to know about treating ethanol withdrawal. Okay. It is a spectrum from not too bad to deadly. In the deadly people, it's all about sedation, sedation, sedation. And we can argue about what kind of sedation and which way you do it. But it's all about that. It's all about checking their glucose multiple times. And it's all about making sure there's not something else terrible going on, like trauma infections, or something else. You can be withdrawing from alcohol and have another condition or six. So be vigilant. And I just realized what I said, poco moco loco, translation, little crazy booger. (laughs) It's not an actual drink. (laughs) It could be, you never know. Or it should be. 
<laughs> you can pick your friends, and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friends' noses. Now you can enjoy the refreshing taste of Poco Moco Loco. Try Poco Moco Loco. Poco Moco Loco. Drink responsibly. It's time for Big Stew with a little review. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Sean. That was fantastic. Alcohol withdrawal is something that all four of us on this C3 episode have had quite a bit of experience with. And I think that you can hear that coming through. We're quite anxious to share our perspectives about this. It made quite a clinical impression on me, as it did with Mel, when I first saw some of my most severe cases and recalcitrant cases. And I'm definitely from the day when we actually put up alcohol drips fairly routinely on patients in alcohol withdrawal, although we don't recommend that anymore. So for the first 10 minutes, I'm going to give kind of the long version of the review mixed in with some of my perspectives. And then in the last minute, 40 seconds or so, I give the straight goods, the straight rapid fire review. So let's start off like Jess and Mel did with patients that have this severe and really scary life-threatening forms of alcohol withdrawal. That case that Mel described was emblematic of that. And when it comes to the management of these patients, we have a watchword, and that watchword is sedation. They need to be sedated. And we all know that that's the key to the management. Now, it was mentioned that a common problem, or the most common problem, is not sufficiently sedating these patients. And I think that's true, but I want to put a little more context to that. And give a little bit of history behind how things have evolved. If you look back a few generations, patients with alcohol use disorder were really marginalized by the medical community. And when you talk about some of these serious withdrawal syndromes like delirium tremens, these really fell within the purview of the psychiatrist. And often these patients were cared for in environments where there just wasn't the necessary medical care Patients with chronic alcohol use disorder are extremely high risk, and we totally appreciate that now. But when these patients had severe withdrawal in these suboptimal environments, it was always an issue of under-sedation. They would get out of control, they would jump out of windows in their agitation, they would harm themselves and staff, and indeed, under-sedation was the problem. Now, what's happened is that over the ensuing decades, we've become much more knowledgeable and able in our treatment of alcohol use disorder. And although under sedation remains an issue, people aren't recognizing as withdrawal is sneaking up on the patients and they're getting more anxious and they're not getting sedated. People aren't recognizing. That's still a huge issue. But we do now occasionally have the problem of over sedation. Now that we have gone to a medical model of treating alcohol withdrawal, it does now occasionally happen, and I know this from many years of M&M rounds, that the patients are oversedated and that we're a little overzealous. And that's usually okay in these cases of severe withdrawal if they're going to be intubated anyway. The problem is, is that sometimes this happens before adequate preparations for airway and breathing are in place and patients end up aspirating and worse. So while over-sedation continues to be a major problem, and it's often not recognized early enough that a patient's in withdrawal and they need to be sedated, there is the possibility of going too fast and too furious and having an airway disaster. So what is the adequate level of sedation? 
I have an interesting anecdote about that, which is when I was starting out at the county hospital in Los Angeles, we'd have so many patients that were in withdrawal, severe withdrawal at the same time. I remember my attending walking around with me and saying, Stuart, I want all of your patients to be sleeping. And it sounded like a fairly simplistic way of looking at it. But over the years, on reflecting on that, it does seem to be a reasonable statement. And so I really don't know what the meaning of sleep is when you have someone with such a profoundly disturbed rhythm and obviously this very dramatic brain-racking event going on. But patients shouldn't be looking around, getting agitated, talking, because those are all things that make it worse. On the other hand, they shouldn't be comatose with their mouth wide open, unprotected airway, and aspirating. So this is something where obviously the art of medicine comes into it a bit, and there's some subjectivity in the things that we're describing, but it's good to see lots of these cases so you can get a feel for that optimal level of sedation where patients aren't going to rapidly crash and have an airway emergency on you. You're carefully taking them down, and when they get to the point where so much medication is required that that sleeping becomes a coma, well that's the time to take the airway. And when it comes to the drugs and to the benzodiazepines in particular, which are the drugs of choice for sedation in alcohol withdrawal, I completely agree with Sean when he touts the benefits of diazepam, Valium, for this purpose. And that's because it's important to stay at the bedside and titrate these drugs to that level of sedation, that magical level that we're talking about, And that takes vigilance, kind of a one-on-one physician-nurse-patient sort of interaction for quite a while. You heard Sean's suggestions of every 10 to 15 minutes making an assessment and giving the medication until you're at the desired point. But then there is that longer period that you get a bit of a reprieve as the drug tails its effect off slowly over time. And that's very beneficial when you have a busy department full of a lot of sick patients. It really makes for a safer situation when a patient isn't yo-yoing up and down and requiring multiple irregular doses of drugs. One other really important component of management that is very difficult to achieve in most emergency departments is providing as quiet and dark as possible an environment for these patients to be in to prevent more stimuli from escalating the situation, escalating the amount of sedation they need. I'm going to allude to this in a moment when I talk about the neuroleptics, but the bottom line is that stimulation is not what they need. Now, just consider for a moment the other end of the spectrum, the way that we treat patients with mild alcohol withdrawal. It's also with sedation. Now, as was mentioned, we don't necessarily have to treat mild alcohol withdrawal with drugs, and we can just dispo the patients home in many cases. But let's talk about the real dilemma here, when you can't decide whether or not to discharge the patients. We have all kinds of scoring systems that have been developed, but frankly, I want to put forward the idea that their response to sedation, so what happens when you give them a dose of lorazepam, for example, can really help you decide about disposition. So basically, if a patient is showing significant signs and symptoms of withdrawal and they don't respond at all, they don't settle at all after a dose or two of benzodiazepines, 
that's a signal that they might be headed to a much more severe withdrawal and require admission. I would never skimp on workup when it comes to evaluating any possibility of trauma that you think might be going on with these patients, or if you think they might be septic or have meningitis. They are more susceptible, not less susceptible to these things because they have alcohol withdrawal. So in addition to frequently checking blood sugars, that's really important here too, as important as anything else we've said, don't skimp on the workup. I've seen people talked out of doing CAT scans on patients in severe alcohol withdrawal with the argument that they were seen talking normally and the process happened in hospital, so there could be no other explanation for why they're altered other than withdrawal. And in that circumstance, I've seen a whole bunch of subdural hemorrhages to disprove that theory. As an emergency doctor, I feel very uncomfortable every minute the clock is ticking when I have a patient who's completely altered and I don't have any brain imaging, especially a patient who's at extremely high risk for mass lesions like bleeding. And the same thing goes for patients that have a fever. Now, we know that autonomic instability and fever can be part of the severe alcohol withdrawal presentation, but again, trying to justify not doing workup for fever because it seems to be consistent with the alcohol withdrawal doesn't really make sense to me. And again, I've seen pneumonias and even worse infections, meningitis in a couple of cases missed because things were written off simply to severe alcohol withdrawal. One last thing that I wanted to weigh in on, and I know it's a really controversial subject, is the use of neuroleptic medications as an adjunct to other sedatives in alcohol withdrawal, severe alcohol withdrawal. And this is something that I have done a lot over the years, and I've noticed that it's very helpful in patients that are getting very agitated from hallucinations. Patients in alcohol withdrawal can have visual hallucinations that are very distressing to them. You can see the patients responding to these stimuli, and when you give them an antipsychotic medication like haloperidol, it can really reduce the amount of more heavy sedation that you have to give. And I felt that it's avoided intubation in a lot of patients over the years. Now, the concern about the seizure threshold, I think, is a little bit overwrought. The seizures that we see in severe alcohol withdrawal actually often do take us by surprise. They're an early manifestation, and they're usually quick and self-limited, and they're a harbinger. They predict the badness that's yet to come. Once these patients are in the hospital, they're receiving sedation, the seizures aren't really a prominent part of the presentation anymore. They very rarely seize after they're getting these loads and loads of sedatives for us. So it's really within that environment that I think it's appropriate to use the neuroleptic medications. And so although these patients can definitely take quick turns for the worse and they can have a ton of comorbidities that might play into how they present, the overall course of alcohol withdrawal, however severe, is not one that takes place over minutes. It's one that takes place over hours and days, and we can kind of map out where the patients are on that map, so to speak. And there's a wonderful diagram in Corpendium that shows that, how things evolve over time. Summary. Alrighty then. Hopefully I didn't overstay my welcome with all of my opinions and perspectives on the topic. But quick final review, alcohol withdrawal. Remember, sedation, sedation, sedation. Recognize that they're getting anxious and tremulous. The treatment of choice is with benzodiazepines, and we advocate for a regular disciplined titration 
of medication until the patient is calm and settled. In some patients, that happens nicely and they go home. And in others, the doses keep escalating. We need to change to different agents and we need to intubate them with RSI in a controlled fashion before they aspirate and suffer other complications of being in a drug-induced coma. We recommend that you check these patients' blood sugars not once, but repeatedly while they are vulnerable to hypoglycemia throughout this process. Think about rhabdo and renal failure, which these patients often develop. And remember, these patients are medically fragile, and so don't hesitate to do whatever workup you think is appropriate in these patients, including a full altered mental status workup with a CT and an LP if necessary, a sepsis workup if they're febrile, and a trauma workup, because there's a lot of trauma in these patients. None of that gets you off the hook for doing a complete history and physical and checking all the nooks and crannies. That's very important. But again, if there's concern based on the HMP, then these things should be done. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on The C3 Project. Thank you.